0: chapters 3, 4, and 5, but you don't have to listen to me reading all three chapters. We've got the first half, which is what's um, in in the leaflet and um, on the screen. So Micah 3, verse 1. Then I said, listen, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, should you not embrace justice, you who hate good and love evil, who tear the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones? who eat my people's flesh and strip off their skin and break their bones in pieces, who chop them up like meat for the pan, like flesh for the pot. Then they will cry out to the Lord, but he will not answer them. At that time, he will hide his face from them because of the evil they have done. This is what the Lord says. As for the prophets who lead my people astray, they proclaim peace if they have something to eat but prepare to wage war against anyone who refuses to feed them. Therefore, night will come over you without visions and darkness without divination. The sun will set for the prophets and the day will go dark for them. The seers will be ashamed and the diviners disgraced. They will all cover their faces because there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might, to declare to Jacob his transgression, to Israel his sin. Hear this, you leaders of Jacob, you rulers of Israel, who despise justice and distort all that is right, who build Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with wickedness. Her leaders judge for a bribe, her priests teach for a price, and her prophets tell fortunes for money. Yet they look for the Lord's support and say, "'Is not the Lord among us? "'No disaster will come upon us. "'Therefore, because of you, "'Zion will be ploughed like a field. "'Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, "'the temple hill a mound overgrown with thickets. "'In the last days, "'the mountain of the Lord's temple "'will be established as the highest of the mountains. "'It will be exalted above the hills.' and many peoples stream to it. Many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between many peoples and settle disputes for strong nations far and wide. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Everyone will sit on, under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid, for the Lord Almighty has spoken. All the nations may walk in the name of their gods, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. In that day, declares the Lord, I will gather the lame, I will assemble the exiles, and those I have brought to grief. I will make the lame my remnant, those driven away a strong nation. The Lord will rule over them in Mount Zion from that day and forever. As for you, watchtower of the flock, stronghold of daughter Zion, the former dominion will be restored to you. Kingship will come to daughter Jerusalem.
1: Well, thank you so much, Tony, and if you can open up your leaflet, you'll see an outline there in at least half the passage, and it would be great if you could have access to a Bible or your phone for the rest. Uh, Let's pray. Father, we want to sit humbly under your word, and we thank you for this word of Micah, which still speaks to us. Our loving God, help us to love you with our minds now as we try and understand what it says. And please give us and increase our hope and faith in you, and our confidence in Jesus the Messiah. Amen. Well, um, the chapters before us, Micah's, Micah 3, 4, and 5, are big picture, big picture, which is good because that speaks to us still, the big picture of our world. There's a lot of anxiety on the ground, even in Australia, about what's happening in the world. You know, we are concerned about Russia flexing its muscles into Ukraine, causing the, the hugest humanitarian disaster in terms of displaced people around the world since the Second World War. You've got China and the US flexing their muscles over Taiwan. We've got, in other words, wars and rumours of wars. You've got inflation, the food and energy shortages and therefore rumours of coming famine. You've got Climate change, of course, with wildfires in Europe, floods here, drought in America, things that Jesus described as the birth pains before the end. The end is what Micah prophesied was coming to Samaria in chapters 1 and 2, which we covered last week. And we think, well, that's sad for Samaria, but it doesn't touch us. Not so fast, not so fast. The twin cities of Samaria and Jerusalem were the two capital cities of the nations of God's people, Israel and Judah. As such, they were the epicenters of God's purposes for the whole world. Remember, God had planned to bring blessing to the world through his people. Now his people are in a divided kind of people, two nations, two Capitals, Samaria and Jerusalem. But last week we heard that Samaria, together with the towns of Israel, were going to be wiped out. So in terms of God's big picture plans for the nations of the world, of which we are part, if we're asking where is the hope for the world, now, at the end of Micah 2, the start of th- Micah 3, we're asking, well, is the hope now with Jerusalem. And many Christians today think so. They think Jerusalem has a a key and strategic and important place in God's big plans for the world. But in Micah's vision, our hope first and foremost is with the Lord, not with a city. So the last verses of chapter two close with God's promise to shepherd the remnant of his people. He will gather them together. And that's the nucleus for our hope, and we think, great. But we still ask, so what about Jerusalem? And now we get to Micah 3, 4, and 5. Now, it has to be said, some parts of the Bible, when you read them, are very clear. And some parts of the Bible are clear, though you have to do quite a bit of work, (laughs) okay? Micah 3, 4, and 5 are more in that category. (laughs) If you've read ahead, you would be excused if if not everything in chapter four was crystal clear to you. It's a bit of a puzzle. Solving it might seem as tricky as solving South Australia's biggest mystery, the mystery of the Somerton Man, right? So back in 1948, just in case you've had your head in a hole, the body of a dead man was discovered on Somerton Beach. No name, no identifying papers, a few odd clues like a name on a tie that wasn't here, well, I don't know whose it was, sorry, and um, some Turkish poetry, some weird exotic um, cigarettes. For 73 years, his identity was a mystery. Was he a foreign spy, people thought, until this week. An amateur sleuth at the University of Adelaide who'd devoted his adult life to identifying this man identified him as... Charles Webb, a 43-year-old electrical engineer from Melbourne. The evidence matches up, but apparently, solving the DNA puzzle with surviving relatives was like doing a very, very complex Sudoku problem. Okay, puzzle. Now, working out what God says in Micah 3, 4, and 5 might seem like solving the Somerton Man (laughs) mystery, okay? but. We're going to go through it. We don't need to get bogged down, is what I want to say. And I want to say it's worth it. The vision of hope in Micah stretches beyond our time. It speaks of a hope still relevant for us, things still yet to come. So let's get into it. God's designs for the world were concentrated on his divided people, Israel and Judah. Israel's capital, Samaria, will be destroyed. What about Jerusalem? Our focus now is on there. Chapter three, which was just read, is God's indictment on Jerusalem's leadership. Her leaders and her prophets are corrupt. It meant nothing for her leaders to make decisions for a price which made mincemeat of the poor, killed people. Her prophets, instead of calling her leaders to account, they say whatever people want to hear so long as as they themselves are fed. And the prophets actively wage war against the true prophets like Micah and Isaiah who are speaking of repentance and the judgment to come. So Jerusalem is corrupt, rotten. This is not what God intended for his people. Go back to their founding moment when God brought Israel out of Egypt through the Red Sea to Mount Sinai gathered around there. He told them his purpose for them, Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6. They were to be a kingdom of priests to the world. They were to be a holy nation. That is, they were to have like a priestly function for the whole world. Through them, the rest of the world was meant to come to know God. The rest of the world was meant to be brought in through them to a saving knowledge of God. But now, there's no way that the nations could come to know of God when Jerusalem was just rotten and sinful at its core, despite the lone voices of prophets like Isaiah and Micah, who, verse eight, God filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might. So chapter three, essentially, is painting a picture of Jerusalem that's rotten with corruption. What is God going to do about this disaster that is his people? In Jerusalem? The answer is he will unmake her. Verse 12: Therefore, because of you, Zion will be plowed like a field, Jerusalem will become a heap of rubble, the Temple Hill, right, Jerusalem's pride and joy, will be a mound overgrown with thickets. Because of her corruption, Jerusalem will be unmade. Now, given that God's plans for the world had centered on his people and Jerusalem was the epicenter and the focus of his plans, this unmaking of Jerusalem spells bad news for the world, bad news for world hope. But thankfully, that's not all God has to say about Jerusalem. It's not the end of his plans for Jerusalem, nor for the world. God has other plans for Jerusalem. And that's in chapter four. So if chapter three is dark, chapter four is like the sun coming up in the morning, shining forth its rays in all its brilliance. Chapter four, verse one, in the last days, God says, ultimately, this is my plan. The mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and peoples will stream to it. This is a glorious picture, the mountain of the Lord's temple being raised up. And it's of international world importance. Verse 2, many nations will come and they will say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. And then as the nations sort of come in and learn of God and then return home, the law will go out. From Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So an international impact Jerusalem's going to have. And we, goes on to say, God will settle the disputes of the nations and, th- and therefore there'll be international peace and prosperity. I mean, can you imagine Russia and Ukraine, both humbly coming to God for him to hear both of their sides and to settle their disputes. And they go, yeah, that's right. Could you imagine that? China and Taiwan having any, any warring or you know nation couple that, that are, have tension. Verse 3, there will be no need for weapons of war. Swords will be remade into pruning hooks. You don't need a sword anymore. I need something to cut my vine, so <laughs> might as well remake them. No need for national service training, international peace and prosperity. Everyone will sit under their own vine, under their own fig tree. No one will make them afraid for the Lord Almighty has spoken. That is God's ultimate plan for Jerusalem. He has to unmake what is corrupt to remake Jerusalem that will bring blessing to the world. He will raise up Jerusalem and the mountain, the temple is on, the nations will stream in. Now, of course, this has not happened yet, has it? I mean, he's unmade Jerusalem, but he hasn't remade her like this but I want you to hold on to that image, okay? We're gonna move on, but just hold on to that image of the mountain of the Lord being raised up. And then Micah says, with that as the ultimate plan, here's what happens before that. And he rewinds back in time. Just before that, verse six, God will gather the disabled exiles and restore the kingship to Jerusalem. Then he says, oh, you haven't heard about the kingship being taken from you, you haven't heard about the exile yet, well, let me rewind back. You will first go into exile and then kingship as you know it now is going to come to an end. And then he says, oh, oh you haven't heard about why you're going into exile? Well, the nations um, will be gathered against you. Babylon um, will come against you. That's why you'll have no kings. The nations will come against you. But he says, but don't worry about that. You'll be redeemed in the end. You will return. So, in chapter four, Micah paints this ultimate picture of God's plan for Jerusalem, and then works backwards from that moment to describe the process of God dismantling Jerusalem as it was. And of course, that happened in 597 BC, Babylon lay siege to Jerusalem. In 586 BC, they destroyed the temple, and it has never been rebuilt. I mean, you go there now, all that's left is a foundational wall, the Wailing Wall, they call it. And at the site of the Holy of Holies, what's there? It's no temple, it's a mosque. So in Micah three, God will bring disaster to disaster Israel, but that doesn't spell the end of his plans for Jerusalem. In Micah four, his ultimate plan, God's plan, is to lift up the Temple Mount. The nations will stream to him learning his ways, enjoying enjoying universal peace and prosperity. But before that, the, the current city in Micah's time would need to be unmade. And then on that somber note that chapter four finishes on, now comes chapter five and the tone lifts because a new figure is inserted into God's plans for Jerusalem. And this is the Messiah. Verse one, Jerusalem, yes, is going to languish. Verse 3, Israel will be abandoned until, verse 2, a Messiah is born. You know, a century after, after Micah pronounced these words, wise men from the east would see a star in the sky and they would travel to Jerusalem. People from the nations would travel to worship the one born, the king of the Jews. Why did they do that? Because they knew that the king of the Jews was significant for them I mean, other kings were being born around the worlds, but no, it was them. It was him that they came to worship. And so in a kind of a preview of the nations coming into Jerusalem, they came to worship the king born, the Messiah. And when they stopped by King Herod, because they didn't know exactly where in Judea he'd be born, and when King Herod didn't know, and he consulted the Bible experts, the experts came back and quoted This very passage from Micah, chapter five, verse two. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is how, chapter two, the Lord will shepherd his people through the Messiah. This is how, chapter four, the Lord will regather the lame this is how chapter 4, kingship will once come again to God's people, not just to them but from, to everyone from the nations who like the wise men will come and worship. They, they can come under his kingship too. We're told he will stand and he will, he will shepherd his flock in the strength and in the majesty of the Lord and that his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth and here we are at the ends of the earth 2,000 years later still worshipping him. And in the rest of chapter five, intriguingly, the Messiah, and this is the the weird thing for us, the, the Messiah is described in militaristic terms. So we're told when the Assyrians would invade the land, he would deliver them. He will lead the army. Israel's remnant, the rest of the people, will be like a lion against the invading nations and their armies will be destroyed. Okay, so there's military kind of language used in chapter five. And we think, what do we do with that? (laughs) Okay, historically, we know that Assyria did invade Judah during Micah's lifetime. The Assyrian army, that was the superpower, did come up to Jerusalem's gates. Hezekiah was the king of Judah at that time and Micah prophesied through his lifetime. It was a time of immense stress and pressure for the king of Jerusalem. And when Hezekiah humbled himself and prayed, guess what? The Lord did come and fight for his people. Um, Isaiah sent messages to Hezekiah and then the next morning Hezekiah looks over the, you know, the, the walls of Jerusalem and then outside where the Assyrian army is camped, 185,000 soldiers are dead. The angel of the Lord just wiped them out. Jerusalem was saved. The Lord fought for his people, but there was no Messiah leading an army. I mean, there wasn't even an army. (laughs) So what do we do with this militaristic description of the Messiah in Micah chapter five? What do we do? We have pieces of prophecy in these chapters. Jerusalem would be destroyed, it's happened. The mountain of the Lord's temple would be raised up with the nations streaming in. This hasn't happened, not in its concrete form. We're told the Messiah would come and regather the lame. That's happened. We're told the Messiah would lead an army against the nations opposing God and his plans. That hasn't happened. But you can see, can't you, why when Jesus turned up, everyone in his day expected him to be a military leader. You can understand that, can't you? And they found it very difficult that he didn't take up arms. Even John the Baptist, you know, Jesus' announcer, he said, when the Messiah came, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He'll come in judgment. So when Jesus comes and he heals the lame and opens the eyes of the blind, he does some of the stuff of the Messiah, but he doesn't come in unquenchable fire of judgment. John sent his disciples to ask, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? Even John's got his doubts. It doesn't make sense. How do you put it all together? Okay, I'm going to finish with three M's. Mission, Messiah, and military. Mission, first of all. The image of mission to the nations in the Old Testament was of the nations streaming into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Centripetal force. This is for you physics people out there, right? So like this, okay? Like a tornado, except not destructive, but you know. (laughs) Coming in. The nation's drawn in with Jerusalem and the temple being the vortex. That is in contrast to the picture of mission we find in the New Testament, which is more like this. Okay, Centrifugal force, outwards, like a hurricane, the disciples going out to the nations as Jesus sent them out in the Great Commission. All the forces outwards. A bit like the the record ride at Luna Park in Sydney. I don't know if you ever did this in Coney Island. As a kid, I'd do this. You'd run, run in and there was this spinning disc and it stops and you run to get into the middle. And then it slowly begins spinning around and you're trying to hang on and it speeds up, speeds up, speeds up, speeds up until everyone's flung off into the padded things around the side. Okay, now that centrifugal outward force is the shape of mission in the New Testament. Jesus' last words to his disciples were, go and make disciples of all the nations, go out. So here's the question. Why does the direction of world mission change? In the Old Testament, the picture we're given in places like Micah 4 is of the nation streaming into Jerusalem, to the temple. In the New Testament, the picture is of the disciples streaming out to the nations. Why? You ready? The answer is because Jesus becomes the temple remember how when Jesus went into the temple and he overturned the tables of the money changers and he drove out the animals, how the chief priests then asked him, what authority do you have to do this? And how Jesus then answered, well, you destroy this temple and guess what, I'm gonna rebuild it in three days. And you remember how they said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. How are you gonna do it in three days? But then we read John chapter 22 verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus became the temple. Because everything that the temple was there for, Jesus fulfilled it. The temple was the place of revelation. It's where you went to hear God's words, hear God's will, to learn of God, like Micah 4 says. Well, Jesus was the word of God, and he taught, the words that came out of his mouth were God's words, he taught the word of God. It's the place of revelation. The temple was the place of atonement, the place where you went to get your sin dealt with. Jesus offers himself on the cross as the atoning sacrifice once for all. His death on the cross makes the temple redundant. You don't need animal sacrifices anymore when you have Jesus who dies once for the sins of the world. The temple was the place where you could go and find a mediator, a a priest, who could intercede for you on your behalf. But guess what? Jesus is our great high priest. He serves at the true temple in heaven. More of that in two weeks' time when we return to our series on Hebrews. Jesus fulfills the whole purpose of the temple It is where you go to meet God, because in Jesus himself, who is God and man, you meet God. So when God says in Micah 4, his plan for world mission is to raise up the Lord's temple so that the nations can stream in, given that Jesus then becomes the temple, and given that he is the one who God raises up, then how do the nations come to know God? Well, the nations no longer str- need to stream into Jerusalem to meet God. How do they come to meet God? Through Jesus. But, of course, he's no longer here on earth, is he? After he rose, he ascended into heaven. And it's very difficult to go into heaven to meet God. <laughs> Where do you meet God now? Well, you meet him in the words of the gospel, don't you? Which Jesus sent his disciples out to preach. In other words, by becoming the temple and by ascending into heaven, Jesus unhinges the temple from its geographical moorings. You don't need to go to Palestine to meet God. Now the priority is getting the gospel news out to the nations because when the gospel goes out to the nations, the nations can then meet God in the news about Jesus, that's mission. That explains the change in direction, right? Next, Messiah, what is the hope for the world? If you look at the flow of Micah 3, 4, 5, it all leads to the Messiah, it is all about him. He's not only the temple, he's the new king, not just of Israel, but of the world. He's the one the nations come to, to learn of God and to have their disputes settled. He is the shepherd. It's through him that God shepherds his people and restores the lame. He's the one who will put down those who are against him. So, so we think, hang on, Well, why doesn't, didn't Jesus do all that when he first came? I mean, he did some of what we were expecting, but not all of it. Well, the answer is that what the Old Testament said would happen on the day the Lord came, on the day of the Lord. Jesus expands that day out. He did some of the things when he first came. The blind did receive their sight. Their lame walked. The deaf were able to hear. But he didn't come in judgment, not then, because he needed to first come to save. But he did, while he came, speak of a second coming, when he would come in judgment, when all those opposing him ultimately will be put down and destroyed. And you read his description in the book of Revelation. It is frightening. You know, this awesome figure who's described in militaristic terms. Only after that will there be peace, universal peace. What this means is that the epicenter of world hope is not Jerusalem, but it is him, The Messiah, he becomes the center, the focus of world hope. Mission, Messiah. And now let's tackle that third M, military. And if you're wondering where does this apply to me, um, as God's people, this is where it might apply. Okay, ready? It's intriguing how it's not just the Messiah who's described in military terms in Micah 5, but also his people I mean, it's all about him. He is the victor, but God's people are also described as an army. And even though Jesus was clear, he was extremely clear, now is not the time to take up the sword in his name. And shame on us in Christian history when that has happened. I mean, that was an aberration. Jesus told his disciples, he told Peter, put your sword away. You know, when he got too enthusiastic and chopped off someone's ear. Put your sword away. He said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. Otherwise, my disciples would fight for me. But it's not. Uh, There's no justification in the New Testament for using arms in Jesus' name. Yet, um, God's people in Micah 5 are described in military terms. Um, Do you think of yourself in those terms? Um, brothers and sisters, do you think of yourself as a soldier of Jesus Christ? At the weekend together, Mike gave us a talk on putting on the armor of the Lord from Ephesians 6. Putting on the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, the sword of Great talk. The crucial thing to realize, I think, is that it's the Lord's armor. We put on, when we put on the breastplate of righteousness, it's Jesus' righteousness, actually, that we put on. Um, his righteousness which becomes credited to us when we believe in him. We cannot stand any other way except through Christ's righteousness. You cannot hope to you know, stand up and fight as a Christian trusting in yourself, goodness gracious. <laughs> you put on the Lord's armor, his righteousness, the helmet of salvation, that comes from him, right? The other thing to see is that in the context of using this language um, of the, the armor of the Lord is, is taking the gospel out to the nations. Paul says, put on the full armor of God, including feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. This is mission language, right? So taking the gospel to the nations is described in soldier terms, as if we are Christ's foot soldiers. He wins the battle, yes, but we are part of his army. You know, we didn't do it uh, for the kids' song. Maybe it's too old, but um, I said to Nareel, oh, wouldn't it have been cool to do I'm too young, too much in the infantry. I'm in the Lord's army, yes, sir. You know, um, that would have kind of been fun. So I I didn't want to be down on the (laughs) song people, but um, there was this old song that taught this. Um, Paul, when he speaks of his work as an apostle, says, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with, military language, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, our weapons have divine power to demolish strongholds. He's talking about the gospel and prayer. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. He saw himself as Christ's foot soldier fighting not with literal swords or spears or guns, but with weapons much more powerful, weapons which can change lives, not end them. Righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, prayer to God that works the powerful sword of the Spirit, the message of the gospel. We stand as soldiers of Christ in a world that's dominated by fear, uncertainty, anxiety. People around us in Australia, we're really worried about what's going on. What hope is there for the world? Micah says, world hope finds its answer in the Messiah. I want to lift your um, eyes and finish by by going to that great hope described at the end of the book of Revelation, when Christ will gather his people to the new Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. Um, This is the hope of the world. So I'm reading now from Revelation 21, verses 22 to 26, and with this I finish. John the Apostle in his vision says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light And the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. And that's world hope. Father in heaven, thank you that you have painted a breathtakingly vast and wide picture for what you're gonna do in the world but thank you also that we have the key, we have Jesus. We can see how Micah's prophecy of what you're doing in the world and how you bring hope to the world centers on the Messiah, Jesus, whom you've sent. And Father in heaven, uh, please may he be the center of our hope increasingly. Enlarge our vision of hope in him so that our hearts are captivated by him and we will follow him and we will serve him and fight not with weapons of this world but with the weapons you give, with his righteousness, with prayer to to you through him, with the sword of the spirit, the word of God, the word of Jesus. Help us in Jesus' name for your glory and for the hope of the world. Amen.